Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by the leading physicist and award-winning science broadcaster, Professor Jim Al-Khalili. Jim was born in Iraq, moving to the UK as a young adult and began his science career, studying physics at the University of Surrey before specialising in nuclear reaction theory at PhD level. After a brief stint at the University College London, he returned to Surrey and quickly established himself as a leading expert on mathematical models of exotic atomic nuclei. Alongside his academic work, Jim got involved in science engagement and in 1999 published his first popular science book, Black Holes, Wormholes and Time Machines, which was quickly followed by others. His big break as a presenter came in 2007 when he was chosen to present Atom, a three-part series for BBC4. This was followed by landmark documentaries on science and Islam, the history of chemistry and electricity. A well-known figure on our TV screens and radio, he is a regular contributor to a number of programmes and presents The Life Scientific on Radio 4, now in its third year. He was awarded the Michael Faraday Prize for Science Communication in 2007, received an OBE in 2008 and was appointed President of the British Humanist Association in 2013. Jim, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here, Paul. So, I think we'll start at the beginning, Jim. Were you always interested in science? How did you, how did you get into it? Not always. Um, I have a younger brother, and I think he was the one who was more geeky in terms of science. He had the telescope, he was into dinosaurs. By sort of the age of 10, 11, 12, I was much more interested in football and girls. Yeah, yeah. Rightly so. Priorities in the right order. Quite. Um, It must have been about the age of 13 or 14 when I suddenly fell in love with physics in particular, I think. As is always the case, um, you know, with people who go into science, there was an inspiring teacher. uh, And uh, and I decided, hey, physics is is all about answering the big questions, you know, what's out there, does the universe go on forever and so on. And it's all basically common sense. I found it much easier to do physics than chemistry and biology, which for me was remembering the names of things that I wasn't very interested in. So it was just a natural affinity, as it were, straight for physics right at the beginning? Very much so. And from then, from the age of 13 or 14, that was it. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do physics and I wanted to become a physicist. I wasn't quite sure what that entailed. I didn't, I didn't have an academic career in mind. I just knew that's what I wanted to always do. So what did you do with that desire at that point? Um, I just kept at it at school. I, I took the right subjects. I, um, uh, you mentioned in the introduction, I, I grew up in Iraq and, and, and came over to the UK when I was 16. So I had taken my O-levels in Baghdad at the British Council in Baghdad, um, so that because we knew we were coming over to Britain, so mm. that I could hit the ground running and start my A-levels when I arrived. So, so incredibly like, serious, committed and disciplined even at that age. Then. Well, and we know with the encouragement of parents who, who knew that that's what I would need to do, um, and uh, and so I took the right. I took the A levels in physics, chemistry, and maths, and uh, and that was it. I applied to do physics at university. I never looked back. What were your goals at this point in terms of? I mean, obviously you wanted to be a physicist, but did you think you might get involved in science communication, or did you consider yourself to have a purely academic career? Were you going to be a teacher and lecturer? Actually, I I don't think I had a clear idea what I wanted to do. Um, I certainly didn't think I'd be getting into science communication. I certainly had no inkling that I wanted to be in front of a camera presenting TV documentaries. And I don't think I even had an academic career in mind. In fact, even up to the final year of my undergraduate degree, I assumed I was going to graduate, get a job, you know, get a mortgage and, and do all the, the, the things that grown-ups do. My, my, my wife, Julie, um, I was already dating her when I was at university and we had planned to get married after I'd graduated. So I even had a job lined up. Um, as a scientist for the civil service at the National Physical Laboratories in Surrey. Wow. 
so that would have been that wasn't that's not an academic career that's that's a job that's an actual job exactly and um, but i um, in my final year i did a research project with a professor of nuclear physics um, this is at surrey at university obviously i must have impressed him because he invited me to stay on and do a phd with him in nuclear physics wow and i thought oh phd but i can't i've got to get a job and a mortgage i'm getting married talking it over with julie we realized that actually she would be prepared to support me that's wow. what I wanted to do. I'm still paying her back. I'm not Good. quite sure when we sort of, uh, we're quits. But... It's an undefined uh, repayment Exactly, age. exactly. So, so that was it. Then, then having decided to do a PhD in the subject, that's when I decided the academic career is what I wanted to do. I wanted to do research. So at that point, uh, once you'd finished your PhD, in your mind's eye, were you going to be a full-time academic, a researcher, and stay in academia? Exactly. Yeah, so, and you, there, there's a sort of well-trodden route up the ladder in, in academia, that you do your PhD, then you become a postdoctoral researcher, a research assistant, essentially, working for a professor somewhere. After a few years, you can then possibly apply for a junior lectureship position, and then you sort of move up lecturer, senior lecturer, reader, until the heady heights of professor. But that was it. That was what I, that was what I had on the road in front of me to aim for. What prompted you to move into science communication? Because there are many kind of professors of physics that consider any kind of popular science communication to be anathema, don't they? They think it's a waste of time engaging with the public. Absolutely. And, and, and 20 years ago, when I started science communication, that was very much the established um, view um, that you don't sort of sully your, your uh, reputation with you know, with the masses by <laughs> going out. You know, you leave that to those who are not research active or who are retired or who've not, got nothing better to do with their time. My my social group of friends were, on the whole, not other physicists, which is somewhat unusual. Yes. <laughs> and so I was very used to um, explaining complicated physics ideas to, 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 to people who, were, who were not, didn't have a background in science. I was used to that translation of the technical jargon into everyday language yeah. and, plain, and the analogies and so on. And I, and I, had a, there was, I got a particular pleasure out of doing that, watching you know, the penny drop when, when I explain something that fascinates me mm. in science and, and explain it to someone else who doesn't have my years of training, but also getting it uh, in some sense. So it's even, also enjoyable to have it explained to, you know, to the recipient of that, because when I went to school and learned science, it was about memorising the periodic table. Mm. It was so disengaging. And it was only through magazines like BBC Focus that I got into it and watching, you know, Atom, for example, where it actually explained, you know, quantum physics in plain English. It really is you yeah. know, it's a joy. I think that's the, that's the thing that a lot of scientists and, and indeed people in the media don't, still don't appreciate, that the wider public, the non-scientists, are not less clever than the scientists. They just don't have the benefit of, of speaking that language. Mm. We're ignorant language. In, in the proper sense of the word, aren't we? We just don't know. Ignorant of the Yeah, exactly. But that doesn't mean that uh, it can't be explained. Of course, there are more difficult concepts that uh, you can't explain in two minutes. You know, if it's, if it's taken me 10 years to learn quantum <laughs> mechanics, why should you have, feel, have the right to understand it in a conversation? But I, as a young lecturer, I began giving talks to local schools. I became the go-to person in my department when journalists were inquiring about science stories. Oh, Jim will go and talk to the, mm. the local radio station or write an article for a popular magazine. And it gradually developed from there. I was warned off. I was told by senior colleagues not to get involved in mm. science communication because I was very research active and attending conferences and writing research papers in journals. Uh, but I ignored that um, advice. And I said, why can't I do both? Why can't it be I be a research scientist and be someone who communicates the science? 
Because it adds to the credibility of both fields, frankly. It does now. Um, but but, but not, in the 90s, no, it was very much something that, you know, I was even introduced um, by a colleague to, to someone who was visiting the department. This is Jim Al-Khalili. He used to be a physicist. Wow. You know, as, as though somehow I'd sold out. <laughs> I'd become a media tart. Incredible. Uh, but these days, I think it's, it is certainly possible to do both, to have that academic reputation and do science communication and broadcasting. And did you, as you dipped your toe in the water with media, as it were, did you realise that this is something that you liked as well as the, clearly you're good at? I did. I, I, I found I derived as much pleasure explaining science as I did doing the research myself. That's not the same for everyone. You know, a lot of researchers are quite happy doing the research and then the only people they tell are the other specialists in that field through a conference talk or through a paper that's maybe read by half a dozen people, you know, other experts in a very specialist field. I got as much pleasure standing up and talking to a wider public because I could see that they, they, they were fascinated. They wanted to know. It's a different level. And for me, it's the challenge of using the right language or the, you know, empathising with your audience, saying, well, what, put myself in their shoes. How do they see the world? How much do they understand? What phrases should I use? What analogies would make sense to them? For me, that was a challenge and, and interesting and exciting in the same way that my own research was. I'll ask you about that in a second because that fascinates me. But in terms of when you started in academia, there was a point where you kind of professionalised that approach where you decided to get on the ladder and go properly. Was there a point with your media career, as it were, where as and when you captured some attention and realised you enjoyed it, you kind of professionalised that as well to think, I have to get an agent, I have to produce a book, I have to get on the radar of producers and programme planners, etc. I don't think I was ever actually particularly proactive in, in, in trying to build up my media career. To this day, I don't have an agent. To, to do my, my broadcasting. I have, a literary agent. <laughs> I have a literary agent for my writing. Uh, you know, you can't really survive in, in yeah. the publishing world without a literary agent. There are many other science communicators, friends of mine, you know, people like Brian Cox, Alice Roberts and so on, who, of course, do have agents. But for me, because I didn't want to proactively do as much media as possible, I wanted to do the, you know, do one series a year, do my radio, but wanted to keep that space available for my academic life as well, I thought I can control this. And I, indeed, I think I can. And so. does, that's, that's my next question, really. I mean, do, do they amplify and kind of uh, feed off each other and complement one another? Or do you, have, do you often kind of feel a tension where, you know, sometimes you might be shooting all day and you're behind marking papers or whatever? I, I, well, it, it can be a challenge sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, my time has to be very carefully organised so that I know that at a particular time of year when I've got exam scripts to mark, I make sure I'm not away filming. When I'm teaching, you know, my, during my teaching semester, there are you know, days of the week that I'm just unavailable for outside stuff. But then, you know, when I'm not teaching or you know, during holidays, that's when I block in my, my broadcasting stuff and the writing fits in and around everything else. So it's just a case of not juggling, but just carefully making sure everything slots in together. Tell me then, I mean, how does how does it work to produce a science show? That do, do, does the BBC Four commissioner come to you and say we want to make a program on quantum physics, and then you say right, it needs to be three parts. We're going to do A, B, and C. I mean, how does it work in terms of where's the creativity led? Well, sometimes it'll come from me. I'll say I'd really like to do a program about such and such, and uh, but then. I wouldn't write it up as a proposal that goes to the commissioning editor. I would work with a producer, an exec producer, either in-house. I mean, most of my stuff is for the BBC. Mm. So either as part of the in-house science unit of the BBC, 
they have a you know a designated group of of producers and directors that uh, put together a program of science documentaries and they look after every, you know across the whole of the BBC. Or I'd work with an independent production company, a producer, and say, look, I'd like to do a program about this. Or they might come to me and say, have you thought about, we're thinking about putting together a documentary about Einstein, let's say. Mm. Would you be interested in fronting it and presenting it? And I'd say yes. Then putting the proposal together might involve me a little bit. I'll say, well, you know, you really should uh, tell this story or you should interview so-and-so or maybe we can describe this particular bit of physics that would come across very well. Hasn't been done before. Mm. Um, But once it's then greenlit once the proposal has been okayed by the commissioning editor for the BBC, then very often the producer would come back to me and we'd sit down and decide on what we would cover. But not in detail. Mm. I then stand back and, and let the producer and director put the story, the narrative together. Because, you know, what works on TV is not necessarily what would work in a lecture or in a popular science book. How does it work in terms of when you're visualising these things? Is it led by the budget or by the creativity? Because, I mean, I've seen documentaries on, say, the double slit experiment where someone just pours a bucket of sand through two <laughs> slots. And then I've also seen it with very sophisticated computer mm. graphics. Um, you know, how is it? You said, look, we need to explain the double slit experiment, but you've got eight grand or whatever to do it. It was pretty much that. I mean, it, I think very often, uh, particularly for the stuff that I do on BBC4, it's budget-led. You know, we've got this much to do, so we better decide, do we want that trip to America to visit that laboratory and interview so-and-so, so-and-so, or do we want to blow our budget on, on sophisticated CGI? So, so we have to decide, we have to juggle what we, how to best use the money. And sometimes a particular concept which we think might be quite difficult to explain, the director finds I do a pretty good job of waving my arms around and mm. get, getting it in the right language. Say, great. We don't need anything else. You've just explained it very well. Sometimes it's difficult to say, okay, what we're going to do here is later on in the production, we're going to add some CGI so you can see spinning electrons or or whatever it is, if they think that helps and budget permitting. But it's that way around. How much money have we got? What do we want to do? Where can we go? On What locations can we visit? Of course, there are other bigger budgets on BBC One or BBC Two where that's not such an issue. Indeed. How does it work in terms of the thoughtfulness of visualising these things? I mean, for example, if you're told to uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, for example, do you literally kind of sit in a cafe and then think, like, how best, or or is it kind of, do they present an idea already, or do you just come up with it from scratch? Are you in the shower when you think of these ideas? How how does it happen? Um, Very often I will think of them because I'm having to think of them when I'm writing. So I enjoy writing probably more than anything because it's entirely down to me. It's my conjuring up my images, my analogies, the, the way I will explain things. Uh, but with television, it could be me. It could be the, the, the director or producer who comes up with it. And I've been very, very fortunate uh, in that almost all this, the documentaries I've made for the BBC, I've worked with other people who are also scientists, directors who've got degrees in physics, even PhDs in physics. And so these are smart people. And they very often will come up with a really nice way of explaining something, like, say, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, because that's a nice example, because that's exactly what I did in a, in a, in a, a documentary a few years ago called Everything and Nothing. I remember it. It was a two-parter, wasn't that's it? That's right. That's right. And Absolutely we explained... fascinating. The first one was everything, and the second and then one there was, was nothing. nothing. Yeah. Right. Well, in nothing, we explain Heisenberg's uncertainty principle as a game of pool, and I say... I remember it. Yeah, imagine, because the whole thing, Heisenberg's unseen principle is you, you can know where a particle is, but you don't know how fast it's moving. Or you can know how fast it's moving, but you don't know where it is. Mm. And we have this game of pool. And I, and I use the example of 
I can either have a snapshot of the game of pool, a, f- a photo, high-resolution image. And then it becomes increasingly pixelated, I right. it. Right. So, so if it's a very, very um, sharp image, I know exactly where every ball is, where the cue ball is at a, at a moment in time, and that image may be 10 megabytes. But I could also use up that 10 megabytes of information on a uh, low-resolution video where you see how fast all the balls are moving, but they're fuzzy, you don't know where they are. And it was such a... And this was an idea that didn't come from me. This came from my producer and the exec producer, a chap called Paul Sen, that I've worked with a lot. And it's beautiful. It's the most brilliant, for me, explanation of the uncertainty principle I've ever come across. It's and, brilliant. It's, and it's not come from a quantum physicist. It's come from my exec producer. It actually annoyed me that because I, I read loads of popular science books. That's indeed how I got into to reading your books. And I thought I understood Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And when it was explained there, I had actually got it in my head wrong for all those years. I thought it was something completely different. And, and that that's right. like annoyed me as well as being enlightened. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. so... Would it be fair to say there's a kind of renaissance at the moment in terms of science uh, in the media? Because, I mean, it's everywhere, isn't it? I mean, would, yeah. would you have got a documentary on electricity 20 years ago at that level of detail? Uh, no, I think that's, that's very true. I mean, it began probably uh, 2010 uh, was when the Royal Society was celebrating its 350th anniversary. Mm. And the BBC decided to sort of piggyback on that and designate 2010, the BBC's Year of Science. So they commissioned a lot of science documentaries then. The, the documentary, obviously, that was most successful, that most sort of touched a nerve, was Brian Cox's um, Wonders of the Solar System. Again, okay, fantastic trem- series. Tremendous success, way beyond all expectations. You know, something like six million viewers. He was reaching audiences that way beyond those who'd switch on and say, oh, there's a good horizon on this evening about black holes. Mm. You know, partly because of his, you know, boyish good looks and pop, star sort of background whatever it was it captured the or the Man- mancunian accent you know it captured the imagination it, maybe and and on the back of that the bbc could see just how marketable a lot of these science documentaries were and they commissioned a lot off the back of that my atom series was as you mentioned in the introduction was my big break i guess as a presenter was 2007 and even that was um i think hadn't been done before it was I remember um, Mark Thompson, the, the ex-controller of BBC, coming to me, congratulating me personally, saying, I never thought I'd see the day where we'd have a documentary on the BBC where a professor of physics writes an equation on a blackboard and doesn't need to wear a white lab coat and, and you know, turn it into some sort of, oh, you boffins. It was all part of the, the documentary. It became acceptable to to get across complicated ideas. And that's really taken off since 2010. Whether it carries on, who knows? Well, actually, that's a, that leads to a better question than Warren's going to ask, is that do you think it will carry on? I'm not sure, I think, is the honest answer. There have been a lot of changes in, in, uh, in the BBC, and um, it's not clear with budget cuts, you know, what's going to survive and what isn't. And, and also, and I can sort of understand this, you know, you can only make so many documentaries where... Jim Khalili walks up a hill or, or Brian Cox gazes up at the stars or Alice Roberts jumps in a boat and heads off to discover some new fossils, you know, uh, or, or, or Ian Stewart talks about volcanoes. We can carry on doing these, but at some point we've done it and said it and we need something different. And I think I can sort of feel that the BBC and the powers that be um, are looking for something different and something new. That doesn't necessarily mean that they won't commission science anymore. I hope not. 
It might just be a different kind of, of, of programme that we'd be making. I'm not a BBC basher by any means, but clearly they have a large budget and it's just a question of priorities. Do they spend those millions on EastEnders or do they cut a tiny slither? I mean, when you actually look at the pie chart, when you see the overall burden of, say, BBC4 on the BBC's overall finances, it's, it's oh, barely a slither. I know. I know. I have to say, I am a fan of Top Gear. Yeah, as, as we all are. <laughs> as we all are. But, but I do, you know, when I think that, you know, one episode of Top Gear is, is, is uh, more than the whole annual BBC4 budget on science documentaries, or probably on, I mean, I don't know, I haven't done the sums, so mm. don't quote me on this, but, but you're right. I mean, uh, but then that's, that's, that's life. I mean, BBC4 has a smaller audience. Oh, in fact, my, my current series, we've done very well. So we've got something like, Six to seven hundred thousand people watched that that program at that that slot. Mm. That's not EastEnders proportions, no. multi million, but it's still very good. And then probably the same number again will will have watched it on iPlayer. So over a million people. If you put that in a room, I mean, or in a yeah. stadium, for example, that's a lot of people. And 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 in this day and age, with so many channels available, and also the change in culture of people not watching TV, you know, live. Kids are watching it on their laptops. People are watching Netflix and so on. Um, numbers are going down all the time. So I've, it's not I've never ever, at. I've never ever listened to the Life Scientific live. I've always listened to it on the podcast. Ex- exactly. Um, that, yeah. It, so things are changing anyway. I don't even know when. Is it on at nine thirty on a morning or something? I it, literally it, wouldn't it, even know when it's broadcast. Oh well, thank you, Paul. It's on at <laughs> nine o'clock on a Tuesday morning. There it's off are. air at the moment. But. Yes, it is. That's right. <laughs> no, but again, you must have lots of people like me that are loyal listeners that that listen via the, you know iPlayer or podcast or whatever. Exactly, and I think BBC must take that into account. So I'd like to think that they can see that there's still an audience out there who want intelligent programmes. I mean, I hear it all the time. People saying, oh, great, the stuff that you do on, on, on the radio or on BBC4 for intelligent viewers and listeners. But then, of course, I'm, I'm in a bubble. I'm surrounded by you know, the people who follow me on Twitter are likely to be the people who watch my programmes. So this sort of self-congratulatory feeling that you get is because you're living in the And there's a big world out there where there are pressures from other corners. Indeed. Another question I wanted to ask is, do you think there's um, a cultural bias in terms of science reporting? Because one of the things I've got directly from your activism in this is the, the, the huge influence of, uh, you know, Islam and the Islamic countries throughout history in terms of number theory, science, etc, etc. And that is something that I've, I didn't know about until, you know, you started to talk about it. Yes, well, when you say bias, you, what you mean in terms of... Because well, when you think of scientists, you only tend to think yeah. of the kind of Western influence. The, well, yeah, I mean, and everywhere in the world, so the way science is taught is a very Eurocentric view. You know, there were the, the Greeks who were European. Yeah. Uh, uh, they were very clever and then nothing happened. And then there was the <laughs> Renaissance, you know, you know, for a thousand years. And then Copernicus and Vesalius and Kepler, Galileo, Newton arrived. So, so the whole history of, of how we've understood the world and how it works has all been done by men from Europe. Um, well, it's true, science, because of cultures and societies, is very male-dominated. There's no getting away from that. But certainly the fact that all science was created in Europe is, 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 is silly. And, uh, and you know, I, I have this passion of, although I'm not religious, I have this passion for telling the story that there are other cultures, and particularly the Islamic Empire in the medieval period, that, that produced great advances in, in scientific knowledge. And it, and that's kind of an extra string to your book because it's not you know just uh, merely as if I can say that you know talking about Heisenberg's uncertainty principles is actually about educating people about the history of science. Yes, I've I've always been interested personally in the history of, history of ideas and 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 the, and the personalities. Not all scientists find that appealing. You know, they don't care about the person. They don't care that 
who Schrodinger was. He came up with Schrodinger's equation of quantum mechanics. They're interested in that equation and how you solve it mathematically and what it tells us about atoms. They don't care that Schrodinger came up with the equation while having an affair with a young woman um, and, and uh, on a skiing holiday in, in Switzerland. But you that's know. the bit that adds colour to it. Of For course. Me, that's the bit that yes, makes it memorable. Exactly. For me, it brings it alive. that These scientific ideas, these concepts were, were in, in the heads of people, other people who had other interests and were fallible or, or, or you know, had quirks of personality, that, that brings it alive. So I've always been interested in the history of science and in my writing I've talked talk about the history of science. The history of Arabic science is something that I just became very passionate about. In fact, the way it started, I just finished um, filming my Atom series uh, and Paul Sen, the, 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 the very clever exec producer who came up with the uncertainty principle, with whom I've worked quite a bit, yes. <laughs> um, said, well, what, what should we do next? You know, um, I think the BBC are going to like this, this series. What else should we do? I said, well, I've got, I'm interested in X, Y and Z programs. And one of the suggestions was Arabic science. I said, because of my background, my cultural heritage, that's quite an interesting story to tell. And it's an untold story. So I made the BBC series Science and Islam. Mm-hmm. And off the back of that, I went off and did a lot of research for two or three years. I didn't do physics research. I was doing history of science research, culminating in writing a book on the subject, Pathfinders. I mean, I found that incredibly interesting, that series, because, you know, if I watch a documentary on electricity, I know it's about electricity and I expect a few eyebrow raises of stuff I didn't know. But with that, with the Arabic stuff, I mean, to be honest, all of it was completely new. It was what Donald Rumsfeld would call the unknown. Unknown unknowns, exactly. And that was a real mind blower. Yeah, I... I'm surprised it didn't, I guess, make more of an impact. You know, it didn't make it to BBC Two, for instance. It mm. stayed on BBC Four, and, and you know, I, I often wonder why. Why did they not deem it sort of okay for BBC Two? It certainly wasn't too advanced intellectually, because the BBC have these sort of different levels of difficulty. Oh no, you can't mm. explain that. You know, Brian Cox gets very frustrated when he wants to explain some concepts. Oh no, no, this is BBC Two. Um, you can do it on BBC Four, but BBC Two it has to be a bit softer. And then if he does something for BBC One, suddenly the things he was allowed to do in BBC Two have to be sort of re repackaged. Yes. So, but science, the, the, the science and Islam series, I thought that, that I would have thought that would have made a nice BBC Two series. So you were a trouble causer in the academic world by bothering to, keep, to actually get into science communication, and then you've uh, you, you've moved on there. But in a sense, you've gone a step further by causing actual trouble in in politics generally by getting involved with the British Humanist Association. Uh, w- yeah. What was the rationale behind that? Well, <laughs> well, um, like many people, I mean, I I haven't been involved in sort of the rationalist movement as long as you have, for instance. I've I've like many people, when you hear about humanism, you think. Oh, okay. Well, that's what humanism is. Oh, I guess that that's Sounds how like I ism, feel. Doesn't it? It's an ism, <laughs> but it's but th- those are the things that I believe in. I find important. Oh, therefore, I'm a humanist. You know, and it was something that came to me you know, only a few years ago. So when the uh, chief executive of British Humanist Association, whom you know very well, Andrew, Andrew Copson, great guy, um, he came to me and asked me if I would consider becoming the next president of the British Humanist Association, and he said, Jim. Just be aware that anyone we would ask to do this is going to be very busy. Yes. <laughs> don't, you know, don't flatter yourself, yeah. mate. Sort of <laughs> that sounds like Andrew. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and so really that was my first introduction to, to, to humanism in a, in a big way, uh, and certainly the British Humanist Association, by being invited to be its president. It's not as though I'd been active in the movement, in the secular movement in, in this country before. 
I was sort of thrust into this sort of into the limelight. Unwittingly and, and, and albeit willingly. And, and, and <laughs> thinking, oh, you know, I hope I don't say the wrong thing. You know, what, what, what is our view on this? <laughs> what, what are the arguments for and against this so I don't get, you know, caught um, embarrassed if, in any interview? And so it wasn't a case of going out looking if I could stir up trouble or, or you know, push, you know, you know the, 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 the secular movement in this country forward and, and fight against, although I certainly believe in that now, fight against the, the injustice of, you know, discriminating against people who don't have a religious belief. It was sort of, I just felt, well, okay, this is, my, uh, this is now my, my, my role as president of the BHA to, to, to make these pronouncements. So I'm not saying I'm a reluctant revolutionary. <laughs> it's just that it wasn't, it, this was never planned. It's interesting, though, because you've, I mean, obviously being president is the top job. So you've moved from not campaigning in this secular space to being the figurehead of the, uh, of the campaigners. And that's quite, quite scary. And the, and the language must change as well in terms of, you know, before you've been explaining and reporting on, whereas now you're actually calling for things. Yes. Uh, so what is nice is that the, the BHA have a great team. Andrew Copson and the team that work with him are, are so on the ball. They're so they understand the issues and the policies and the campaigns, and I'm led by them. And so, you know, if I'm asked to make a pronouncement or to I mean, interview, I will I will talk to them. I'll say what what is it? What is our main point here? What should I? What's the main things that you want me to get across? What shouldn't I say? Um, and fingers crossed, so far I haven't embarrassed. Well, I don't think I've embarrassed them. They haven't told me that I have. So I, I'm led by by the professionals, I guess. These are these are the guys who do it full time. What I like about the fact you're president is that almost overnight you became the top guy in this particular space, and actually <laughs> you have the credibility, the science background, and uh, you know. Well, I'm, I may have the science credibility, and in, my my family was certainly uh, pleased. My 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 son and daughter said, "Oh, we are we are the first family of British atheism." All of a sudden, <laughs> <laughs> quite like that. <laughs> quite like that. But but I, yeah, but I mean, when I do look at people who've spent so many years campaigning, and and you know, putting so much of their lives into the secular humanist movement, for me to suddenly be sort of uh, catapulted to the top of the pile, I do feel a bit of an imposter sometimes. <laughs> well, I couldn't think of a better person. But uh, <laughs> uh, if I can ask a final question, because I'm just mindful of that, we're running out of metaphorical tape, as it were. Um, um, what's next for you? I mean, because clearly you've pushed the envelope every time, moving from academia into science communication into campaigning. W what's the next leap? Well, I think the next thing for me is obviously to get on to Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> I, I say that with only half <laughs> yeah. of joking. Well, if it's you know. good enough for Vince Cable, then... Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are you a good dancer? I think I am, but doesn't everyone? <laughs> oh, no, I'm completely really? aware of my own feelings. Yeah. Well, well if, there, if there's a dance move that involves moonwalking, then, you know, I'm their man. But, <laughs> but do, do you think you'll be able to... Uh, I mean, do you see it continuing, balancing your, uh, your, your writing do. and your broadcasting with the, the academics? Yeah, I mean, I, I, at the moment, it's sort of roughly half and half. Half of my time, I'm an academic professor of physics. I do teaching. I have PhD students. I publish papers. I'm, I'm interested in research. I've got a new area of research, quantum biology, that I'm, I'm involved in. And the other half of my time is my public engagement. Now, that also includes my BHA activities. It's my, my persona as a public scientist. So my BHA activities, my writing, my broadcasting, mm. my, you know, my radio, my public lectures and so on. And that balance I would like to maintain. Now, I don't know whether TV stuff might dry up. You know, Life Scientific might stop being funded. I'd still like to write and i still like to be plugging away campaigning for 
rationalism, I guess, in some form or another. Does, um, I mean, final, final question then. Does you campaigning on rationalism um, create some enemies on Twitter? I mean, people who like you as a science broadcaster but might object to the fact that you're now campaigning on issues because it gives them something to disagree with you on. Yeah, sometimes, but surprisingly few. I did think when I took on the presidency of the BHA, I would be opening myself up to attack from various quarters. After all, you know, my mother's... Christian. She, she's very religious and I respect her right to have her faith, which is very important to her. Uh, my father's a Muslim. Um, so technically, you know, you used to follow the religion of your father in Islam, unlike in Judaism where you follow the, your mother's religion. Technically, I'm a Muslim, as perceived in the eyes of, of maybe some Muslims. So I thought I would get some issues as an apostate, you know, and so on. Uh, but no, I haven't. I haven't. I mean, I've, well, I will now that I've, I've made it quite... <laughs> public on this podcast <laughs> but uh, no it's it's you know the, the attacks i've had have been few and far between and the great thing on twitter you can just block people anyway so. and long may they remain blocked but i think it's probably best that we bring the podcast to a close it's been a fascinating interview and i've learned an awful lot jim thanks ever so much my pleasure a big things media production 